Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tiamanini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with playwright Jahe Park, whose new show, Peerless, just opened from primary stages off-Broadway on Tuesday. We spoke on Monday ahead of the opening. There was a lot of nerves and excitement heading into it. But this show is a dark comedy that's based on Macbeth and follows two Asian-American siblings, L and M, see if you can figure out what those initials stand for, who are striving to get into their dream college and decide that murder is their only recourse when another student takes what they feel is their place at the university. Directed by Margot Bordelon, the show is running into November and was actually originally supposed to be part of Primary Stage's 2019-2020 season. Jahe and I got into the unusual road that she took in writing this show and how it kind of was born out of necessity when something else just wasn't working why this story is especially close to her heart, and what she does and doesn't like about some Shakespeare productions. We, of course, will have information on where you can purchase tickets to see Peerless through November 6th at 59 East 59th. All right, with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with Jahay Park. We have all obviously been through a lot in the past two and a half years, but I feel like in terms of theater, this show, Peerless, has kind of been one of those shows that has gone through quite an up and down trajectory over the past two years. It was originally supposed to be uh, having its New York debut in 2020, I believe, right? And then we're finally getting it at the end of 2022. What has that been like for you as a playwright to kind of have to wait and, and kind of see so much happen in the community before you're getting the opportunity to actually put this show up on stage in front of New York audiences? Oh, what a great question. It's funny. I, I feel like I have a sort of anticlimactic answer, yeah. which is that the, there was just so much happening over the last couple of years that it didn't feel... Um, it just felt like, okay, well, that's, here's another thing. Here's one of the, the many things that is going on. And people are dealing with a, a lot worse than having a, a production postponed. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just uh, grateful that it's, that's up, that it's happening <laughs> now. It, it, there were so many things about the pandemic that, um, that made us see how, ephemeral everything is uh and especially especially theater so it, it feels like sort of a miracle that that anyone is able to do anything uh it's yes it still feels kind of crazy that we're going through all of this uh after such to me i don't know about you uh, but it feels like the pandemic was both 20 years and 20 minutes at the same time and i don't know how that yeah. works um but during that time period did you go back and look at the text? Did you go back and re-examine what your work was? Did you tweak? Did you change? Did you continue to workshop it with people? What was the process of this from the point when everything shut down to when you finally got into the actual rehearsal room for the production with Primary Stages? Yeah, there, there were some things that I had known because the play it is an older play. It actually premiered in 2015. Right. So there were some things that I knew from my direct experience working on it regionally and then second and third hand from hearing about other people 
um, either involved in productions or in the audience of other productions that I wasn't involved in that I knew I wanted to take a look at. Um, so I had always had that in my mind as even before I knew this production was going to happen in 2020, if I get the chance to do this again, then here are the things that I'm interested in looking at. Um, so, so I knew that it was, there was work that I wanted to do. It was actually really great to have that, that time to, to brew on it. There, I mean, there's certain more surface level things like, like there is a payphone in the draft <laughs> from 2015, Those which seems like yeah. there's, there's no payphones now. And like, there weren't that many left in 2015, but it, it truly is jarring to the ear to hear the word payphone now. Um, there was a line about Skype, which also felt yeah, not got to update that. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it felt like a week, well, we can't say Zoom because that's actually is like two of this moment. The play lives in a heightened reality. Yeah. Um. So there, there were little things like that that were just about tweaking the world so they didn't seem distracting from the story. And then the biggest changes that I made were twofold. One is um. So this is the Fourth time now, just wild to say uh, that the director Mar Margot Bordelon and I are working on this. We did it at the Cherry Lane Mentor Project in 2015 as a workshop production, not open to reviews. And then we did the premiere at Yale Rep later that same year. Uh, and then we did a, a third time in Marin. And I had cracked some plot stuff in the the second half of the play there that... Um, that I had been struggling with in the first the first two times we put it up because we it's a really technically challenging play to do both for the the actors and the de and designers. There's a, a lot of different things that need to happen for the play to function. So I I, I didn't have the time to sort of sit and and massage what uh, I wanted the final emotional arcs to be. Um, and I feel like even now that we have more time to to deepen that. Um, and then the other big changes are specifically around the indigenous representation in the play. I had mm -hmm. some really helpful, generous conversations with some uh, native playwright and actor colleagues who were really specific about the ways in which the intent of the play was not matching the impact, especially because of there's a general lack of context in your mainstream American theater going audience, mm -hmm. which is, as we all know, tends to be older and whiter. Um, and so there were things that, uh, but it's not just white people. It was things, anyone who was non-Indigenous, there, there were things that they were taking away that was not what I had intended and actually felt really hurtful um, to my colleagues and friends. And so I went back into the play and tried to really clarify what the intent was to, uh, to make the play better, to yeah. uh, avoid what I felt like was the wrong kind of laughter in certain places. Um, and to just, to, to deepen the themes of the play and just, just clarify, and I think this production is real. is so much clearer than the other ones that we've done. Um, and again, I'm really proud of of the work that that's been done by everybody. 
in the last few months. Um, but like a special shout out to our our cultural consultant, Vicky Ramirez, who's a brilliant playwright in her own right that I know from New Dramatists, um, who has been really thoughtful and like had such a, a such a smart, incisive eye uh, on on these specific issues and actually just generally dramaturgically because she's a great playwright. Um, because I I want uh, it, it really troubled me when I when I heard that there, there was what I considered yeah. to be the wrong kind of laughter and, and I understood why like when it was explained to me I was like okay yes like this this makes sense to me and how can we how can we um, take care of all of our community members not just the ones who uh, are the usual suspects going to the theater yeah and that's. To me, I would imagine that that has to be one of those moments when you get that type of feedback that can be both incredibly enlightening, like you mentioned, but also that can be, um, I don't know if hurtful is the right word, but it's like you almost, you could, I would shrink and, and feel like I made a massive mistake and I let people down. Like, what was the, what, what were the emotions that you went through? And you're like, man, I, that wasn't what I wanted, but that's how it comes out. And then as a writer, fortunately, you have the opportunity to go back and fix that. So what was the kind of like the the emotional roller coaster of, of kind of dealing with those issues that you might not have had the opportunity to see had those uh, individuals pointed them out to you? Yeah, I think, I mean, anyone who's ever had this kind of conversation, which at this point in 2022, it I would imagine it's all of us yeah. <laughs> where someone's like, hey, this thing that you said, like, maybe you want to take a closer look at that. Um, though I feel like there's a bunch of simultaneous responses. I think like a, a pretty common and natural one is like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. Yeah. Um, and so once you get over the initial defensiveness of that, um, to which is important, and I, I think probably takes time, like hopefully the older and wiser we get, the the shorter that a period of time becomes where we need to, the gap between hearing something like that and, and then genuinely asking like, okay, is there, is there something to this that I need to look at? Um, and I, my tendency is when I have something that I'm trying to understand to just try and get as many different points of view on it as possible. So I reached out to, um, I had heard some things after the Yale production had closed. Um, and, and over the years, I I had a lot of conversations with different people um, and was trying to process, okay, because, you know, no, no one person's, like theater audiences aren't a monolith and uh, no identity group no cultural group is also a monolith. So trying to take in um, a lot of different points of view and sort of synthesize for myself what feels true and what feels um, in a totally selfish way as well. Uh, there's multiple aims to this. Like I, one, as someone who's a member of the theater community and um, these are my colleagues, I wanna make sure that they feel as welcome at a play of mine as I would wanna feel at, at a play of theirs. Um, and then also the other metric, which I think is equally on my mind is, uh, it, it's not about 
like critique proofing the play or like not making people mad. It's about making it better. I think a lot of um, a lot of conversation about diversity and sort of things that fall under the category of doing the right thing in life uh, in in the arts. Like there's this mistaken belief that it, it is about like uh, protecting yourself or seeming correct or virtuous and virtue signaling but like ultimately all of those things make make the work better because if it's more true it's more true for everyone um and i i do really feel like this production um there's fewer distractions and the issues that i am interested in feel clearer uh, hopefully with fewer of the things that uh, that I was not interested in, that I think people were uh, were reading. Uh, and yeah, I actually, I just think it's, it's better in the same way that when you, um, you know, I, I work in TV sometimes and when you have a writer's room, which is like, you know, a group of a lot of different people, having diverse voices in the room is not just to like cover your ass. It's to that all of those points of view, like make the work better because you have a richer tapestry of experience and truth to pull from. Yeah. I love that perspective on that. The one thing you said that you kind of talked about earlier on was that this show kind of lives in a heightened reality. And uh, I said it in the intro, we haven't talked about it here, but this is a show that at least has a framework that overlays on Macbeth. And that obviously will lead to anything being a bit of, of heightened reality. But as I'm, as I'm reading through some of the notes on the show, was the, was this story actually originally conceived as a takeoff of Macbeth or was that something that was added later in your developmental process? It was, uh, yeah. So the inspiration for the show, the, the origin story of the show is that I was at McDowell, which is a writing residency working on a different play. Uh, I was in the Soho rep writer director lab and I was working on this huge sprawling, uh, like the play that I was co-developing with a set designer that, <laughs> that I realized while I was there, I thought, oh, no, this I am not going to finish this play <laughs> in time for this reading uh, that I'm scheduled to do in two months. And I, I was freaking out of it. And there's a a wonderful playwright named David Ajmi who was there at the same time. Mm -hmm. And he saw me sort of freaking out and he, <laughs> um, he took me aside and he said, you should stop. You should just like whatever you're doing, you should just stop um, and do nothing for a little bit. And it seemed like such wise advice it was exactly the right thing to um to suggest at that moment so i did nothing for three days i just took some walks in the woods and maybe paged through a few books and then i was in my studio late at night and i just had the thought i had i had a knowing and occasionally this happens it's so wonderful when it happens because it's so rare uh, i thought oh what if i were to write a different play uh, and it's sort of a riff on Macbeth, but it's two Asian twin girls and they're trying to get into college. And I sat down and I wrote the first 40 or so pages. Wow. And as soon as I wrote it, I thought, oh, okay, I, I actually know, I know what this first gesture is and I know what to do. So the next day I sat down and I wrote the next 40 or so pages. And the next day 
um, same. And I, I think I wrote it over four or five days pretty quickly. Not the whole play, I think roughly through the um, the basement scene through the, so like two thirds-ish of the play. And it took me quite a long time to finish it. Um, but it, yeah, it was from, from the first spark, I knew this is the, the light framework I'm going to riff off of. Uh, and I'm only going to riff on the parts that interest me. I won't feel beholden mm -hmm. to the play. I, I have this weird, um, I don't know if you call it a habit. I, I had a repeat experience because I've seen Macbeth many times yeah. and I was in, um, I went to graduate school for acting. So I was in a lot of scene study classes where we would work on it. And I had this brilliant Shakespeare teacher named Jim Winker, James Winker, who was an old ACT Bill Ball guy. And he very, uh, very comprehensive knowledge of rhetoric and just Shakespeare's language and world. And so I had all of that stuff sort of seeped in my subconscious. Um, but anyway, so uh, the the weird repeat thing that kept happening to me is a lot of times when I would go see Macbeth, I always fell asleep at the same place, <laughs> which is when the play shifts focus from Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and goes out of the country and is dealing okay. with politics and, and, and you know, other things that, that Shakespeare was interested in slash wanted to do for for other reasons um and so i i thought well i i'm i'm only going to riff on the parts that i respond to um and don't fall asleep to and don't fall asleep to because i'm not trying to please anyone but myself yeah, like there's yeah. no no one's of giving course. me a grade on how well i'm adapting <laughs> this text yeah uh so yeah that was there from the beginning so as you kind of go through it as you are, are writing this show with the ideas of kind of taking the elements of Macbeth that you like and taking them into this new story. How did one inform the other? Did you, as you kind of kept writing and you did 40 pages, you did 40 pages and you kept do, on doing all these edits, did you find that you were wanting to bring in more elements of the of Macbeth or less? Or did you bend one to the other? Or, or how did you kind of find those moments to settle on what actually is there as the underlying framework for the story that's on stage now? Uh, so I knew when I, so that first night when I sat down and I wrote the first stretch of it, I knew I didn't want to go back and reread the play. Because I, 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 yeah. I yeah. already... I didn't want it to be too academic. I already had years of experience relating to the play in some as a audience member, uh, as an actor, as a student. Um, so what I did is I flipped over a piece of paper and I wrote bullet points of just the large events, the plot points from the play that I remembered that seemed important. And when I got lost, and I think... I didn't go all the way through the end of the play. I just wrote through the ones that I remembered and found interesting. Um, and so when I would go out the next day to work on the play, I would just flip over the paper, read what that framework was, and it um, it just came out. I, I didn't have to think hmm, about great. it that much, which was like, again, such a rare uh, experience, but but a gift and and... Yeah, I have a couple of other plays that have happened in that way and it, where it feels easy. Um, 
and then the finishing of it is was not easy. It was like torture and <laughs> scratching. And then I did go back and read the play and I read a ton of other stuff. Um, but that first two thirds, uh, I didn't have to to wrestle with it consciously too much. Um, when I was finishing the play and really uh, trying to figure out what the ending was, because the ending is, is different. Um, it has some similarities, but it's, it's different. Uh, I, I thought about the play and what pieces of it structurally felt interesting to me. Uh, and then I also was at the time reading a lot about June and Jennifer Gibbons. Do you know who they are? I don't think I do, no. So they were these twins. Uh, There's just a film about them uh, that was based, I believe, on Marjorie Wallace's book about them. So there's this uh, British journalist who wrote a, a book about these twin girls, which is how they, uh, how a lot of us know their story. Um, they were these two twin, girl, twin girls who their father was, I believe, in the Air Force, it was some military branch, and they were the they moved um, to Wales, where they were the only black family, and they uh, had their uh, twin things like a, the twin language, intensely yeah. private, super, you know, super loving, and also uh, the codependency could bleed into anger. There's diary entries where they describe trying to kill each other and then not being able to do it. Oh, great. Um, but they also went on this, what was described at the time as this crime spree where they set a lot of fires to local buildings. They lost their virginity to the same young teenage boy in a church. Uh, there's something sort of salacious about the story that I think captured the public imagination, but thinking about who who they were in the time that they were and how isolated they were um, was so interesting. And uh, one of the details about their story that gets uh, retold a lot because it's, it, I mean, it's just so striking is that they, Marjorie Wallace reported that the twin girls, they were institutionalized eventually after they were caught um, setting one of these fires. And they told her one of us has to die so the other can live and we've decided it will be this one uh and then shortly thereafter during either a transfer or the release um the girl did die she had i think a, some sort of spontaneous heart condition oh event uh and she died and the other girl lived out the rest of her days in relative peace and obscurity. Hilton Ells did a piece about the surviving Gibbons twin uh, many years later. Um, and so that also felt so interesting to me, the intense codependency and need for the person that you love and hate the most and what it means um, to have that relationship in the context of being so isolated and feeling like the only one uh, of your kind, um, how that would intensify everything. And they, they did things that, you know, seemed wild, uh, but they were also kids, they were teenagers and how much of the reaction to them was about race and class. And um, that was really helpful in figuring out how the play was gonna end. Uh, which I struggled with for a while. I've never heard that story before, but even just kind of thinking about the potential parallels between that, what the plot description is for Peerless and then Macbeth 
sends my mind in a in a whirl and i can't wait to figure out what it is exactly that you have done for this ending because that all sounds incredibly fascinating um beyond the the macbeth influences of it because i feel like at this point we all kind of know you know the the ups and downs and the and the morals and the the lessons of macbeth beyond that as you lay in the story of two Asian twin girls, twin sisters trying to get into college. What about that story was something that you wanted to tell with or without the Macbeth connections uh, involved in in that process? Yeah. Uh, So uh, I'm Asian American. My parents are Korean immigrants. My father actually lives in Korea now. My mom has since moved back to America. Um, And there there are a lot of stereotypes and model minority stereotypes and other stereotypes around high achieving asian american students um and the there are also some really tragic bewildering things that happened like in the bay area i think a few years after the premiere, or actually, it might have been around the same time as the premiere, there was a spate of um, suicides of largely Asian American high achieving students uh, that felt related to the pressures that they were under. Um, and it, it does feel like, I mean, there's a lot of different things to untangle. I think the part of the process of working on this play was trying to unpack my feelings about it. Um, this model minority stereotype, which is so pernicious because it is useful, right? Like the reason that so many Asian American kids may seem to resemble the stereotype is is because the one way that they are taught that they can succeed uh, in America, like this is your avenue. um, So stick to your lane. And it can also feel, I think, so I'll, t- I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was in high school, I'll do two stories. Uh, one of my friends, who I'm still friends with now, applied to all of the Ivy League schools and only got into one and was waitlisted at all of the others and was utterly distraught. This was someone who had the perfect grades, um, she's Chinese-American, perfect grades, Um perfect scores, all the APs, piano competitions, all the things that you're supposed to do, and was weeping. And in her distress said, everyone knows that this school, the one I got into is the crappy Ivy, Um, which was like such a bonkers thing to hear. Um, But just, I feel like it's so emblematic of the hysteria and the pressure around this stuff, because it, it feels like and we're talking about kids, right? When you're applying to college, you're still a, a, you're a child. Like 17 is, is yeah. a child. Um, so pressures that we're putting on on our kids to succeed in a really narrow way and within this framework of scarcity that feels like, oh, well, if you don't do this, then like your, your whole life is over. And they're not, like those messages are coming from somewhere. Like that's not a story that that when you're five, you make up for yourself. That's the story that you get from your parents and from society and from the world. Um, so that's one sort of touchstone I think about when I think about where this play came from. Um, another is I have a 
another friend who she got an early admission to a very prestigious school. And uh, she mentioned that she'd gotten some snarky remarks who said, oh, you own, the only reason you got in is because you checked the native box. And she went to the same, I went to this very competitive math science computer magnet program. She went to the same program as us, uh, had good grades, maybe like, you know, 0.1 less than uh, some of our, our peers. Uh, but also had worked basically her whole life since she was able to. She was the manager of a local store by the time she was 16. She had received this presidential citation for rescuing people from a oh. train wreck. <laughs> like oh an God. incredible person yeah. who has since proved in life and in college, like, of course, she deserved to get into this school. Um, but the, this this sort of like snarky uh response that came out of i think again like we're dealing with children so came out of this sense of fear and scarcity and rage and entitlement um that's always been there and, and I, i've noticed in the last you know 10 20 years that i have heard in troubling ways members of my community of Asian American, Asian American community speaking in ways that I used to associate only with, with uh, white people. Um, and I think that is really interesting to this like weird position of being a model minority that has privilege, um, but it's a very conditional privilege. And so when that conditional privilege is threatened or feels threatened, lashing out against other groups with perhaps less privilege or, um, other other minority groups in general, because it's safer to attack people that you think have less power than the people who have more power, who are actually the ones benefiting the most from the system, while the rest is uh, you know the rest of us are all fighting for scraps. Um, so and I, you you know you see it in the in a few weeks, the Supreme Court is going to hear the the Harvard case, um, and it's it's complicated it's not a simple issue uh there's also there, there's a lot of different kinds of privilege involved that I, I remember hearing in an NPR story where they were talking to two Asian American um spokespeople for different sides of the debate and you know it it, it the the person who was speaking on behalf of maintaining affirmative action who was probably closer to age, uh, who's closer to my age, spoke unaccented English, had probably grown up here, um, was supporting affirmative action. And the person who was sort of aligning himself with the anti-affirmative action cause was someone who had a thicker accent was probably a first generation immigrant and this feel this like narrow defined path um probably feels like closer to oh this is this is the only way um so it, it's it's really complex and we see it in new york too with the the debate around the specialized high schools um which is just it's so it's so complicated um, and it's also when you zoom out, like such a small part of actually what 
the issues are like we really are fighting over scraps like we're fighting over four high schools when new york city <laughs> like the educational system of new york city is actually the problem um but because there is this this scarcity perceived and real scarcity around um around resources it, it just what it does to people is um is bewildering and, and understandable and insane all at the same time. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll wrap up the conversation with this question that always kind of fascinates me. I think there's a reason that when you were in grad school, you did a lot of work on, on Shakespeare shows. There's a reason that they continue to be taught. There's a reason that they continue to be uh, performed. Some of that is because, like you said earlier, old white people like them, so they get programmed a lot, but also they clearly have some sort of storytelling and emotional resonance, whether that is just as a familiar shorthand um, or something a little bit deeper from that. But we continue to see plays riffing on Macbeth and Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet happen all all the time. And a lot of times they're really fantastic works. I mean, we just saw Fat Ham um, win a Pulitzer Prize. As you were going through this, you had this idea. Did you kind of find different things that maybe even just on the back of your piece of paper as you were writing down plot points, different elements of this story that continue to ring true that perhaps you might not have even realized when you set out to write this show? I I love Shakespeare. <laughs> Yeah. I love I I love the the aliveness of it. And Macbeth, what I what I love about the original play is that it's so complex and the characters are so human and the ugliness in them is not something that it, it's not like the ugliness of a space alien. It's like, oh, all of this, this is in all of us. And so let's look at ourselves and keep keep an eye out too because there there's a reason um there's a reason that that they did what they did and it's it's a shorter distance than we think um depending on the circumstances you know that's sort of there but for the grace of god uh framework around it yeah. so i i think the play, I mean, you can do, and I have seen very bad productions of Macbeth. I mean, bad is simplistic, um, just really simple productions where especially where Lady Macbeth is played as just this like scheming villain. And it's just not terribly interesting um, because it's not, it's not about people. Like what makes, what makes that play sing for me is how, how human they are and so in working on the play i think uh it was really important for me that it the play starts off uh i think more heightened and then the emotion and the character there's there's a shift that happens halfway through the play there's a sort of breaking point um where the the characters are forced to deal with the ramifications of their actions and it's really important to me that that even though they seem like stereotypes at the beginning, that by the end, my hope is that we understand emotionally, which is not 
to say we justify or um, in sure. any way yeah, approve yeah. what they're doing. But that we understand emotionally what it was that happened in them um, because that's that could be true of any of us, like at people that I talk to about this play, like everyone has a crazy story about someone they know or something that they heard recently um, about someone doing something insane to try to get into college. Uh, there's, there's, there's always something. So, and those stories also sound insane, but they're real and they were real people who did them. Um, so that, that feels important to me and that, uh, continues to be a touchstone and when we were rehearsing the play and working on it because it's, it's just really it's too easy to say like oh look at these evil people that do evil things who are nothing like us yeah well i i am always a sucker for anything like this like you said i i love Macbeth, so i love all of the different takes on it and i'm fascinated by how you've overlaid this very real and human story over top of uh, this piece that we all know so well and love for very many different reasons. So um, it opens this week. It opens. Is it tomorrow? Tomorrow, Tuesday? It, it opens? opens tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh we've been gosh. in previews for a bit. So tomorrow it opens. Well, good luck with opening night or break a leg. I don't know if I should, if it, but if it matters, what you say to a playwright as opposed to an actor. But, um, but <laughs> I, I, I wish you the best and I'm uh, excited to see the show and see all of the other. Uh, great pieces that I'm sure you're working on both on stage and screen. Thanks so much. So nice to chat. <laughs>